So I mentioned last week uh, that I was previously in the publishing business. So I made books. That was my, my, one of my, uh, basically my, my primary job. And I did that for a number of years. And the last uh, position that I held at the publishing company involved having a number of editors that would uh, report directly to me. And, and, it, and if that's the case, you would assume the person that is uh, the, the boss of the editors would have extraordinarily strong editorial skills, which, you know, I, I'm no slouch, but at the same time, I'm nowhere near the level of, uh, of, of professional as some of these editors that I had reporting to me. So they were the stronger editors, yet they were still reporting to me. They're the experts. So if you're going to have editors reporting to you, you don't want to present yourself to them as a grammatical buffoon, right? So, so every email that I would send, every correspondence, I would make sure, make sure there's no dangling participles, make sure there's no, there's no uh, sentences that end in prepositions or, or subject-verb agreement, things like that, because again, you don't want to, to send something to them, even in, in, in an email, which we, we are so sloppy with these days, right? We just fire them off and bam. It used to be, remember back in the day, you, none of you probably remember, but when you, you, your only option was just to, to write out, my dearest so-and-so. Right? We don't take that much time to, to think about correspondence. Now we fire away. But me, I'm like, I have to do this right because I want them to, to think that I'm, I know what I'm doing. Right? You know, he just ended his sentence with a preposition. He's my boss, you know? So I was careful. And I must admit, it, my sensitivity reared its ugly head uh, once in a while at home. Okay? And, and let me tell you something. If you ever want to see my wife give me a death stare... Correct her grammar while in mid-discussion. She'll say, I'm going to lay down. No, you're going to lie down. She won't say anything back, but, she, but she'll just give me this murderous look. But admittedly, that's a tough one. Do I lie down on the bed or do I lay down on the bed? You lie down on the bed. You, 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 you lay your clothes on the bed. But I myself lie down on the bed. It all has to do with being the, the, the direct object. A direct object is the noun that is receiving the action. So if it is a thing, a direct object, it lays down. But if it's an action that I'm taking myself, I lie down. Okay? So after I correct my wife's grammar, she will lay my dead body down <laughs> on the ground, you see, I have then become the direct object, okay? Here, here's another one. I was uh, corrected on some time ago by one of, uh, the, of my editor friends. Uh, I can't use the word itch. I can't use the word itch specifically uh, as a verb. So I have a bug bite and I want to itch it, okay? That's incorrect. I want to scratch it, okay? I want to scratch it, not itch it. Okay, I, I can't use itch as a verb. No, not in that sense. I can say the mosquito bite itches. Right there, it's used as a verb, right? But, but it would technically be incorrect if I said that. I was told that I myself cannot itch a scratch. All right, isn't this fun? We should keep going with this. 
because uh, I've got more. Uh, things that th I, sh I, should have master I should have mastered all these things in grammar school, but, uh, but again, you continue on in ignorance for years, well into your adult life. And again, I've probably made three or four grammatical errors just in the time that I've been up here, but c'est la vie. So in the Apostles' Creed, there's, there's a line that I know many of us have said for years and years and years, and we assume we know what it's talking about. We believe something about this line in the creed, but, but if, we're, we're, if we're to scrutinize it just a little bit, we might be forced to ask ourselves, is this right? Or have I been thinking the wrong thing for a number of years? Uh, the line I'm specifically referring to is, is this one, right? Uh, dead and buried, you know, crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. It's crucified, dead and buried, and then, semicolon, he descended into hell. He descended into hell, all right? That's, that's the context. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Jesus Christ, his only son, was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried, and he descended into hell. There it is. And, and its placement, its placement not only, add, only adds to the difficulty because of the order that it's stated. Suffered, dead, buried, and then it says descended. So here's the question. Here's the question we want to ask ourselves. After Christ died on the cross, after he was buried, did he then descend into hell? Christian people will answer this question one of two ways. They will answer, yes, he did descend into hell, or they'll say, no, he did not descend into hell. So which is it? Have you your thoughts about this? Did Christ, after he died, descend into hell? I will not pressure you into making an answer. I'm going to ask you, yes, I think he did. No, I don't think he did. Or I don't know. Okay, let's take an informal poll here. How many people say, after Christ died, he descended into hell? A few of you, okay. How many of you say, no, after Christ died, he did not descend into hell? <laughs> Very sheepish hands coming up. How many just don't know, aren't sure, aren't sure? The majority of you, great. This is going to be a great lesson. Okay. All right. Now, I know, I know you, some of you probably have opinions and are ready to express them even. You're probably itching to tell me, right? <laughs> Thank you. That's, that's, that's what we call a callback in the business. Uh, I'm going to ask you to hold on to your thoughts for just a moment because I, I first want to talk a little bit about the history of this particular line in the creed. Remember, we, we, don't, we don't scrutinize the creed in the same level we might scrutinize Scripture. Scripture is it, right? It is God's infallible word, whereas the Apostles' Creed is not. The Apostles' Creed is a, is a summary. It's a, it's a concise summary statement of what we believe, and again, not inspired in and of itself uh, uh, by the Holy Spirit. So, in other words, we, we can scrutinize it and say, I don't necessarily agree with that, but I, I think I'm supposed to. So, we'll, we'll, get into, we'll get into all that. So, again, it was not written by, the Apostles' Creed was not written by the Apostles, but it's a summary statement of what we believe the Apostles preached and confessed. Also, to combat heresy and all kinds of things like that, that's what we use creeds for. Summary of some of the essentials of, of our faith. Now, you might find that this, uh, you might find it curious that this line, he descended into hell, was not included in any version of the creed until around 400 AD. So something that was started to formulate in the first, uh, early second century, late first, early second century, by the fifth century, 400 AD, 
Uh, it was only found in one version of the creed back then. And it wasn't really widely accepted in the creed until around 650 AD. So again, this line is not without controversy because again, we want to know what do you mean by that? And, and there's a couple of different ways that you can approach it and say, okay, in that respect, yes, I agree with uh, that line. And in a, in a completely other one, you say, okay, I can agree with him for that. The informal poll that we just took, you know, yes, I believe. No, I don't believe that he descended into hell. Believe it or not, both opinions can fit within the confession. And I'm going to explain that in a little bit. Um, so, because we believe, here's, here's again the essential of what we believe. Um, a significant percentage of Christians, theologians, pastors, Bible teachers do not believe, do not believe that Christ descended into hell after he died. But again, it remains in the creed. By many, and many of those Christian theologians and pastors, Bible teachers, are still okay to confess it. Why is that? Because they believe that Jesus experienced hell. Okay? As Christians, we have to universally agree, we have to universally agree that Jesus experienced hell on the cross. Okay? To say that he didn't is categorically non-Christian. I'm going to unpack all this, so don't be alarmed yet when you, when you hear me say some of this stuff. What we don't necessarily agree upon is the order. At what point did Christ experience hell? And why did he necessarily have to experience hell? That's the big question. Let's see if we can arrive at some of these answers by inching toward them. And again, I'm almost positive we're going to have to spill this over into next week. Uh, so we'll, we'll just go until we can't. But let me, let me ask you this. Uh, someone answer this for me. Where is hell? Where is hell? Does anyone have a pretty good idea where it is? Do you, you, know, you had your hands up. Do you know? Don't, don't tell me a city. <laughs> because, like, I hate... Do you have an idea, though? Do you have, okay, here, here's, here's, here's Trisha's thought. Where is hell? I think hell is separation from God. I don't think it's a particular place. I think it's separation from God. Okay, so it's not a geographical location, right? Right. It's not... Uh, uh, no, I'm not even going to name a city. I don't want to offend anybody, right? I may have lived in that city. You never know. So, someone else? Any, where is hell? Any ideas? Trisha said it's separation from God. It's a good solid start. Good, good solid definition to start us off with. Anyone else? Generally think, you know, we, we, we tend to have this idea that uh, hell is, speaking of geographical locations, hell is down. Yeah, hell is down. This is what we've come to accept as Christians over the centuries, that, that hell is down. Again, remember, first century here. They're, they're trying to formulate these ideas. Jesus ascended into heaven, ergo, something else must be down, okay? Countless scientific uh, advancements throughout the centuries. And we discovered we live on a giant round ball. And, the, and if you don't think that, we have to talk afterwards. Uh, we live on a giant round ball, and the only reason down is down is because of gravity. Whichever direction you go on this giant round ball, it will eventually lead you to outer space. So if you drill all the way through the earth, you'll still be in outer space, which is up, right? Or maybe hell is this. How many of you actually believe that hell is somewhere near the earth's core, right? Don't raise your hands. Do any of you believe? No. <laughs> if, if we're able to drill down far enough, would we, would we find hell in the earth's core? Okay, of course not. Of course not. Perhaps the better question is, what Tricia was alluding to already, what is hell? Okay, what is hell? Because in discussing what is hell, we might not come to the conclusion that it is any specific place. Rather, 
a state of being, though, again, we have to consider what Scripture says. Scripture refers to it in Revelation 20 as a lake of fire, okay, which seems to suggest perhaps a physical location. However, again, I have to qualify all these statements. The book of Revelation is a highly symbolic book, too. So in other words, in the book of Revelation, it's apocalyptic language, which is not different than the, the second half of Daniel. A mountain isn't always a mountain. A, a stream isn't always a stream. A river isn't always a river because it's a highly symbolic language in that, apoc uh, that uh, apocalyptic, uh, those apocalyptic books. Dean, did you have a question? It's helpful for me to organize this in kind of the Dante way, you know, that, that Paradiso, Purgatorio, and Inferno, you know, that, that I, think, I think understanding what they mean by this. Yes, helpful and, and unhelpful in some ways, because believe it or not, in Dante's Inferno, a lot of, a lot of that, that, that uh, uh, language or a lot of those concepts have creeped into our vernacular as Christians, and so a lot of us assume, oh, uh, that, that is, that's biblical truth. There's, there's too much of it, again, that, again, you're only speaking of the levels, yes, but, uh, uh, but again, what, what we're trying to define is maybe not specifically where it is, where hell is, but what it is, okay? Um, think about this. Think about this. There, there, again, in the scriptures, more than a physical location, there is more to be concerned about what, the what of hell rather than the where of it. But think of it like this. If God is the embodiment of everything good, okay, of everything that is lovely, pure, and holy, this, this, is, this is what God is, then what is evil? Evil is the absence of everything that is lovely, pure, holy, good. So wrap your mind around this. Evil is not a thing. Evil is not a thing. It is not a tangible thing that we can touch, taste, feel, hold, uh, or, or being. Rather, it is the absence, evil is the absence of God's goodness. Okay? Evil is the absence of God's goodness. For instance, a lie is the absence of truth. Hatred is the absence of love. Unrighteousness is the absence of righteousness. Injustice is the absence of justice. You following? So in a sense, evil is the vacuum that remains when good is removed or when God's goodness is removed. Okay, evil then is not necessarily the presence of something. Rather, it is the absence of God's goodness. All right? I'm just, just formulating an argument here. So, so here's what we're saying. What hell is, more than the presence of anything, is the absence of God's goodness. In James 1.17, right, it says, every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change, right? So whether people realize it or not, anything good, anything perfect is a gift from above. Happiness, whether you're a Christian or not, happiness is from God. Peace is from God. Beauty is from God, okay? So take away God's goodness and you take away all those good and perfect gifts. Take away all those good and perfect gifts. And what are you left with? The absence of God's goodness, goodness which, is, which is torment, which is hell. Okay? Now, here, here's a little good example that you might see on everyday life. Uh, what would happen, and I've asked you something, questions similar to this before. What would happen if Tracy and I, my wife, removed ourselves and our influence from our home and left our boys to themselves, just purely, just let them run, we're gone, 
It's up to you to do what you want to do. What do you think that would look like? Chaos is a pretty good word, okay? I think they'd probably park themselves in front of a, a computer, right? For who knows how long, stretches at a time. And maybe they would only stop once in a while to go downstairs to find some ramen noodles, right? No protein, no, certainly no vegetables, right? Uh, so it'd be a diet of maybe ramen, uh, uh, donuts, and Doritos, right? Which sounds kind of good. No, 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 it doesn't. Uh, so basically, if we left our kids to ourselves, if we removed our influence, right? If we removed ourselves, if we removed our presence from their lives all at once, what would happen? I'm convinced they'd destroy themselves, right? It's not that, that we've sent them somewhere to suffer, to be destroyed. The only thing I have to do that would result in their ultimate suffering is remove myself, okay? Remove my protection, remove my provision, remove my desire to see them flourish. See that? And again, every analogy breaks down, but, but you get the principle that when you remove the good influence, the good from something, what, you're what are you left with? You're left with something that probably will spiral down and out of control and, and even into destruction. So what is hell? I submit to you that hell is more than a place, more than a place, it's a state of being. And, and that state of being is what? Simply the absence of God's goodness. And this is where I want to be careful because you will, listen, and, and again, Trisha, that was a great definition, but sometimes we stop at hell is separation. We have to define it more. We have to define it more, okay? Because, because sometimes we'll often hear that hell is just separation from God, and that's not quite right. This is why I've labored to speak about the absence of God's goodness. Because to Believe it or not, believe it or not, to be in hell is, is, is not just straight up being separated from God. It is to be in the presence of God subject to his wrath. Okay, remember, God is omnipresent. And you either have his protection or you don't have his protection. If you don't have his protection, you have his wrath. So you're being separated, yes, from his goodness, but not from him. You're subject to his wrath. And again, this is, this is terrifying. This is terrifying. We just heard a, a sermon on, on persecution and suffering, and now I'm telling you about hell. I hope you have a great Sunday. <laughs> but again, it is to be in the presence of God without the protection, and for us, the, the protection and covering of Jesus Christ. It's to be in the presence of God without the benefit of grace and mercy. See that? Okay? Okay, so, so let's bring this back around to the creed. Why was it necessary for Christ to die? Why did Christ have to die? Well, if the wages of sin is death, if Christ was our substitute, he had to die for our sins. Okay, but not just die for our sins, but he had to absorb the punishment. He had to absorb the punishment for our sins, okay? If the sins of the world were placed on his shoulders, if he absorbed the sins of many, Hebrews 9.28, it necessarily leads to death. It necessarily leads to, to the separation from God's goodness, his judgment, his wrath, his punishment. So he took on the wrath of God. All right, this is, this is why the creed couldn't exclude the mention of his death. Okay, it, it, it was a necessary part of our redemption. Christ's absorption of our sin, the necessary separation from God's goodness as, as a result of that sin. And again, 
separation from God's goodness, the absence of God's goodness, the, the withdrawing of his goodness. What is that? that? That is hell. And then, of course, the natural result of God's curse, the absence of God's sustaining goodness is death. Okay, I'm going to pause right there because that's a lot. Anyone, just that much, uh, anyone have any thoughts, comments, questions? Is this shocking to anyone? Is anyone like, this, this disrupts everything that I've ever believed? Anybody? Don't be afraid to, to ask. Yeah, okay, I've got two. Jody, and then we'll, we'll come to Todd. There's just, just a quick question. Granted, all that you just said, doesn't there, since we will have, resur- Christians will have resurrected bodies, I assume the unsaved will have a resurrected body they will still be humans in eternal separation and torment. Should, wouldn't there not need to be a place also? A physical place. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, because what Jody's referencing is that, yes, we, we will all face a resurrection, some to death, some to life. And so what do you do with those physical bodies? Good question. Where is it? I still don't know, but I know what it is. I know what it is. I know there's a, there's a lot of scripture that talks about the absence of light, light, and I couldn't help from the analogy when I was, you know, as a kid, we always played in a, in a basement room without the light. When you turn those lights out, you're, you're, you're in darkness, you're lonely, you're, it's, it's not a good feeling um, wandering around, and so for me that, I'm not sure that categories into the wrath portion but it's certainly absence of something yeah it's a great description of God's wrath it is the absence of light uh, the absence of goodness the absence of all the things that you think are lovely true and pure that are God you know light uh, what you know, just using the analogy of light light enables you to see see where you're going and if you have if you don't have imagine you know how terrifying it is to drive a car without headlights on not that I've ever done it <laughs> but Again, it's terrifying. And again, it's not because uh, the presence of something. It's because of the absence of something. Okay, makes sense? Anyone else? All right. Now, I'm going to challenge your thoughts one more time here. Okay, again, because how, how does the idea that, uh, um, okay, uh, it's separation from God. Uh, where's one of the places that, that we get that, okay? Uh, we get the idea because Jesus said on the cross, right, what did he say on the cross when he was, one of the seven things that he said, what, what, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, okay, and so immediately we, we, we tend to, to look at that and say, okay, uh, suffering, hell on the cross is being forsaken by God, all right, let's think about that for a minute, okay, was, uh, was Jesus, uh, let's see, how can I say this, speaking his own original words when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What was he doing? Who was he quoting? Psalm 22, which I happen to have right here. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Once again, who said these words? David, mm-hmm. David, okay, as he is saving this, does this mean, think about this, was God absent from David when he was saying this? Was God absent? God, no, God is never absent, all right? 
Was he totally removed from David? No, of course not. God is omnipresent. Otherwise, why would, da- why would David be <laughs> if, if God was not there, if God were not a thing, why would David be saying, my God, who's he praying to if God is not there? If God is not there to hear, why bother saying, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? Who's he praying to? Okay, if he's absent, there's no one to pray to. What God is lamenting is that he is removed from God's goodness, God's favor. He's experiencing one of the consequences of sin, a fallen world. And in that fallen world, sin takes its toll and causes his enemies to pursue and surround him. Okay, and he begs for God to deliver him, to pour out his grace and goodness upon him. But again, it's not that God is absent. It's that he's at a deficiency. You know, he, he, he's, he's lost that sense of God's protection. Now, the reality is that David was never not protected by God. He was always under God's protection, even when he didn't feel it, okay? So for Christ, again, it's important to emphasize that Christ, this is very important, that Christ was not separated from God. Like, the, the Trinity didn't turn into a two-member Godhead for a moment, Okay, if, if that happened, the world would stop spinning. It would cease to exist because Jesus, fully God and fully man, bearing the load of humanity's sin, was subject to God's wrath, but he didn't divide from God. The Trinity has always been the Trinity. The Trinity is always unchanging. Okay, so he was feeling, he was suffering the effects of, of God's wrath upon him, Jesus the man. Jesus was exposed to God's wrath and Jesus' response, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay, let's stop right there. Does that make sense? Or are you starting to feel uncomfortable here? Because a lot of people are like, no, I'm, I'm off the train now. I don't, I don't believe that. I believe that there was separation. But again, you have to think through the ramifications of what you're saying when you say that Jesus was separated from the Trinity for a moment. Okay, now you have a lot of other questions to answer if that's the case. But again, if we're holding to the fact that, again, just as David said, why have you forsaken me? He wasn't really forsaken, but again, what was absent? The, the goodness, the favor. Okay, this is what, uh, this is what Jesus is, is lamenting in the moment. Yes. I always thought about that from a little different angle in that it wasn't Jesus feeling like he was forsaken, but he was a rabbi, so even then, he's kind of shepherding and his people that are there with him going through this, and to me, it was him uh, speaking scripture to the crowd, reminding them, this is what you knew was coming. So, a, a bit of a prophetic moment, a shepherding prophetic moment, because again, yes, Scripture is true. And again, the, Jesus says this as a means of fulfillment of prophecy, too. Okay, so there's a lot of things happening there. But again, what I want you to, what I want you to know and really chew on, even if you, you, you feel like you're disagreeing with me a little bit, I want you to go home and chew on that for a little bit. And we can have a discussion later. But, you know, I'm still not comfortable with that idea. The Trinity was never divided. Okay, the Trinity was never di- divided. Now, now, I'm building a case here. So stick with me and uh, let's see how much. Okay, maybe, maybe we'll stop. Uh, a little after this, this next point, um, and we'll continue next week, because uh, I'm building to the big point that I, I want to make in all of this. So Christ is experiencing hell as he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's experiencing the, the absence of God's favor, and, and this is why we, we affirm the mention of hell in the Apostles' Creed, because we really believe he necessarily experienced it, 
Okay, so when it says he descended to hell, what do we make of that? What are we supposed to make of that? Do you, is there any other language in the Bible, uh, maybe that we can affirm through the, the New Testament, uh, or old, I don't care, uh, that, that sort of speaks to ascended, descended? Is there any language that comes to the top of your head that we can sort of make a comparison to? Because remember, remember, the creed comes after the, the scriptures. Ascended, descended, condescended. The beggar at the gates. Not what I was thinking, but it's good, good, good. Huh? How about this one? How about this one? Okay. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being found in human form, or being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself to the point of becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This language is descriptive. And that was a tough question. Tough question. I, I, uh, that was maybe too, too, uh, too much of a stretch here. But the concept that's being described here in Paul is the idea of Christ condescending. Okay? It's the idea that Christ, who though he was in the highest of a place, the highest of heavenlies, who enjoyed every privilege being at the, at, the, at, the, at the right hand of God, set that aside, willingly so, willingly so, and then he did what? He descended. He descended from on high, and he walked our earth. He, he, he put his feet in our sod. Christ, who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He emptied himself, and then he did what? If he was in high heaven with the Father, he descended okay, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but he descended. He emptied himself and made himself a servant. He humbled himself and, and descended. How far? Death. Even, even death on a cross. Okay, so you have to think about when, when did Christ's descension begin? It, it began the moment he stepped out of heaven. It began the moment that he, that he was incarnated. The moment he, he became a... a uh, um, uh, an embryo in his mother's womb began his descension. He began descending. How far did he descend? He did not stop descending until he was, he was born, and then he, he subjected himself to all the things that we are subject to, and then he became a, a servant, and after he became a servant, he became a sufferer, and after he became a sufferer, he then died. Okay, so there's this progression that he just continues to descend, 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 descend. To what point? to the point of death, even death on a cross, to the point where he experienced hell on the cross. So again, you have this picture of a descending Savior who descended so far down to the lowest of lowliest possible places. Okay? It, it, that, so when the, the, when the Apostles' Creed affirms and uses language like descending, that should conjure up an image of, of something like Philippians uh, two, five to eight, really go all the to, to way to 11 to, to get a bigger sense of that, okay? So again, that's the progression. He died and he was buried, and he was buried, which confirms the reality of his death. There can be no questioning as to whether or not Christ died uh, because his burial attests to the fact that he was completely and utterly dead. Now, okay, this is where we'll put a pause in it for now because what I want to, 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 to uh, pick us up for the next time is uh, the idea that uh, Christ's dissension, Christ's humiliation, ended 
on the cross. When he said it is finished, he meant it is finished. That's it. It's an accounting term. Tetelestai, which means paid in full. Okay, so the moment he, he breathed his last and then he proclaimed it is finished. Oh, he proclaimed it is finished. Then he breathed his last, right? It was truly done. And so that means there's no further payment to be made by descending to hell after that. All right, so, but here's the, here's the other thing that, that we have to be aware of, and this is what we'll, we'll discuss next, uh, next week. There are at least two, maybe three, arguably, uh, verses in the scriptures that seem to imply that Jesus descended into hell, even after he died. Uh, one is from Second Peter, another one is from uh, uh, Ephesians, okay? And we're going to look at those next week, and we're going to sort of pick them apart and figure out what is actually being said there. But again, as with anything... Context is key. Context, context, context. If you're reading a passage that seems to describe the fact Jesus descended into hell to, to preach to, to, to uh, Old Testament saints, that's usually where people go, that Jesus descended into hell to preach to the Old Testament saints. Uh, you have to ask yourself, does the context around it support that idea? And invariably, the answer is no. Okay, so that's where we'll go next week. Any final thoughts, comments, or questions? I don't want to give you too much all at once, but I want to give you at least that and a teaser for next week. Courtney. It just makes me think uh, the second point about the separation of God's goodness and mercy of the hymn, the father turned his face away, as when Suchamar, the chosen one, and then that God can turn his face towards us and make it to shine upon us. Who, who, who knows the, uh, the um, benediction that we, I just said in the service? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. So this idea, this idea of, of God shining his face, God shining his favor, this was to the, to the, to the, uh, uh, the Old Testament Jew, the, the, the zenith of being blessed by God. The Lord bless you and keep you is to be in the presence of God, to behold the face of God. All these connections that the Old Testament makes, that, 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 that Bible verse is pulling together as, as Moses, remember? He wanted to speak to the Lord face to face, as a friend speaks face to face. This is the, the blessing of God's goodness, okay? Now, when, when Moses was in the, the presence of God, uh, in interceding on our behalf, uh, his face shined because he was in the presence of God. Now, when he then went back down the hill, right, he was no longer in the presence of God in the same way he was, but that doesn't mean that God was absent. But again, the, the, the point that we're making when, on, on the cross when that hymn says, when the Father turns his face away, it's not that he pulled his presence away, but all that is good, all that is lovely, that, that being in the presence of God affords someone like Moses, that is being pulled away and, and shined elsewhere or, or just somewhere else for lack of a better way to describe that but again it's not that Jesus was ever separated from God okay great point I love that yeah Greg so this probably takes you to even the next the third day he arose but the question I have in my mind is so where was Jesus spirit between it is finished on the cross and the third day he arose. Because in my mind, when I hear the Apostles' Creed, and I hear he descended into hell, where my head goes is he's in hell for that period of time. So, again, that may be two weeks out, but that's, I, I want you to unpack that. It'll be next week. Where, just to someone have a quick answer, where was Jesus the, after he died? Where, 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 where was Jesus after he died, said it is finished? Where, where, did, where did he go? He never stops being God. Where, where did uh, Jesus tell the thief on the cross? When? 
this day. This day. So you might think of Jesus, again, and this is something I'll unpack a little bit more next week, is that Jesus descended and his descension ended, right, with his death on the cross, then immediately began his ascension. Immediately. Here, here's, here's just a nugget for next week, from next week. Uh, where was Jesus buried? In the tomb of? Joseph of Arimathea, who was a wealthy man. So immediately, even in his, even in his, again, I'm getting in too much next week. I mean, we'll review all this next week. Do you know what happened? Do you know what happened to, to uh, bodies that were crucified on the cross? Do you know what happened to them after they were pulled down off the cross? Where did they go? The physical bodies? The dump. Literal, there was, a, there was a, a burning fire pit outside of the city walls that would burn, you know, perpetually. It's called Gehenna. They would take the bodies and throw them in there. Did that happen to Jesus' body? It did not. It was placed in the tomb of a wealthy man. His ascension, his glorification began immediately after he breathed his last on the cross. And again, so that's why, again, I contend that his, his, his uh, suffering was over. His humiliation was over. And he began his glorification. He didn't go down into hell. And he may be enjoyed three days at the side of the Father before he then resumed his, his, uh, the rest of his work uh, 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 as the glorified Christ. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in John 14, 6, where I am the truth, the light, and the way, you can't come to the Father except through me. Well, Jesus wasn't around in the, in the Old Testament, so I'm assuming you know, all the people that died prior to Jesus coming were somewhere, right? So did he not go down to somewhere to give them the good word that's generally the argument is that okay what about the old testament saints who didn't know jesus we talked about this i think two or three weeks ago and again you have this is this is important for understanding this uh uh uh, this this idea of jesus's ascension and dissension uh again i like to use this lectern because it it looks like a cross it has a cross on the front and and this is really important it's really important to understand this as as, uh, as covenant believing christians it's that if the cross is at the center of history, okay, uh, you and I, as people living on this side of the cross, we look back in faith to say, that's why, that's why I'm saved, okay? Now, this is, the, this is the tricky part. I know, I know it's hard to wrap your mind around, but the saints that lived on this side of the cross, they still looked ahead by grace through faith at the cross. That is what saves me. Again, they didn't have a full picture of it, but they believed by grace that somewhere, somehow, someone would have to come down from heaven and save me. And again, it's, it's the same engine. Faith is the same engine that the Old, Testaments, the Old Testament saints and New Testament saints had. They looked forward, we look back. And so it's not that the Old Testament saints were, were uh, you know, sort of just waiting around for Jesus to come and then, ah, finally, now we're free to go. Again, if you think about Abraham, Abraham and Isaac, whom Abraham said, told his son Isaac, the Lord will provide a sacrifice. That is a whisper, a whisper of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's Abraham's way of saying, which, which later is then confirmed again in, in, in Hebrews, by faith, Abraham, it was counted to Abraham as faith because he was saying, somehow, some way, the Lord is going to provide a sacrifice and save me. I don't know the pictures. I don't know his name, Jesus. Uh, but I know some way that the Lord is going to have to save me. It's, it's faith. It's, it's the same engine, all right? One more. Becca. Probably not a good time to bring this up. 
but the whole um, thing that I was thinking about before with the beggar and the rich man, yeah, Lazarus, uh, Lazarus um, he was in heaven with Abraham, uh, and the rich man was supposedly down because he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off with Lazarus at his side. So I don't think uh, Abraham was in hell waiting for right. Jesus to come. <laughs> I think they were in heaven already. Uh, I'll, you know, I'll talk about that a little next week too. I'll specifically talk about uh, Lazarus and the rich man and Lazarus. Okay, because again, it does shed a little bit of light as to, as to the, the down and up part. But again, less about where it is. And it, you know, there's some component of where, but more than anything, it's about the what. You know, what is it? Okay. Uh, if you have any other questions before next week, I'm glad to entertain those and please send them my way. I'm, I'm always uh, uh, grateful to be able to talk through some of these more difficult things with you. So let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you that, uh, gosh, that it's so much fun and that uh, we can wrestle with these things and we can wrestle with them together. Thank you that you've given us a, a forum for this uh, so that we don't have to struggle through this alone, uh, but you've given us one another to, uh, to chew on these things and to, uh, God willing, leave uh, friends, uh, but at the same time, maybe not even agreeing on everything, but, but thank you that it's your Holy Spirit that unites us, and uh, Father, help us. Help us as we seek the truth of your word. Uh, be with us this week as we go our different ways, and, uh, and thank you for your son, Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you all.